beside you and say, you look really nice today. <laughs> Some of you enjoyed that a little too much. So why don't you look to the other person beside you and say, you look pretty good too. Go, <laughs> go ahead. It's not awkward. Receive a compliment. Receive it. It's good to see you guys. How many of you are pumped for Thanksgiving Thursday? Anybody? Yeah? Yeah. Uh, a quick survey. I'm curious. Christmas music before Thanksgiving? <laughs> or after Thanksgiving? Wow. Wow. Some, uh, some dogmatic... Uh, narrow-minded individuals here that need to be set free of their ways. It's a great debate this time of year. Did you know that? Christmas music, when do you play it? Is it before or after Thanksgiving? I'll be honest, I'll play Christmas music in July. That's no problem with me. You know what I'm saying? Mariah Carey in July? That's fine. All I want for Christmas is you. Yes, Lord. Um, Anyway, some of you are new today and you're like, what have I done? Uh, it's good to see you. Welcome to Mayus. I'm glad that you are here. Uh, if you are here for our baby dedication, looking forward to that at the close of our time together this morning. Baby dedication is an ancient practice of the church and really looking forward to the few little children that we get a chance today to dedicate and to anoint and uh, looking forward to the chance for both parents and our community to stand beside of these children to make a vow and a promise to train these children up, these children up in the way of Jesus. So I'm very excited about that. Today we do wrap up our five-week teaching series called Planted, where we have over the last few weeks been exploring the narrative portion of the book of Daniel. And we've also been playing off of Jeremiah's call to the exiles in the Old Testament to build houses and plant gardens while you are in Babylon. And our goal as a community has been to examine how Daniel and his three friends live as faithful and resilient followers of Yahweh in the midst of a foreign culture, specifically of coercion and of compromise. These four young men provide for us, I believe, thousands of years later, a descriptive paradigm for how we can live in an increasingly post-Christian and secular world. Not as separatists, where we just remove ourselves from culture as best we can or from society as best we can, and not as syncretists, where we simply simply assimilate into the culture and, to be honest, don't look much different than the culture. But to become what the British historian in the early 20th century, Arnold Toynbee, and then popularized by the former chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, calls a creative minority. 
This is our aim. This is the third way, you might say. Not as separatists, not as syncretists, but as a creative minority. Or practicing what the sociologist James Davison Hunter refers to as a faithful presence. What does it mean for us in 2022 in our city and in our world to be a faithful presence? Inspiring our world or influencing our world rather than assimilating into it or dominating it. Jesus in the New Testament refers to this as being a witness. How do we become a witness in our modern moment? Testifying to the reality of the gospel, the reality that Jesus is king, that his kingdom has been inaugurated. What does it look like for us to be a shining light in this moment? In a time in the West when Christianity, as we know it, is in rapid decline. The Barna group has found that right now within young Christians, only about 8 to 10% are referred to as resilient disciples. And to me, that's a bit of a stretch because in all honesty, it's really just more of what I would call basic Christianity. People who attend church occasionally, they read the scriptures, they submit to Jesus as the ultimate authority. They serve, they're participating in the local church. And to me, that is just basic discipleship. But we live in a time and in a moment where it seems as though the church in the West is in a decline. And so what does it look like for us as a small remnant, a small cognitive minority in the realm of sociology to be a renewing agent from within, inspiring our world and pointing to the person of Jesus? Here again is our definition that we've been using over the last few weeks of a creative minority, in case you're wondering, what is a creative minority? Pulled from the book under the same title by John Tyson and Heather Grizzle. Here's the definition for you. A creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons. Stubbornly loyal. A character trait foreign to our moment. Loyalty and commitment. Knotted together in a living network. Not a social network or a digital network. A living network of persons who are committed and devoted to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. In our community, the very definition of discipleship is to practice the way of Jesus together. This is what it means to be a student of Jesus. And this is a very clear definition of what it looks like to be a creative minority in our world and moment. Here's another beautiful definition of what this looks like to be a creative minority from the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., During this period, he says, we will have to depend on that creative minority of true believers. Key word there is true. We live in a time, unfortunately, friends and family, where you can proclaim to be a Christian and not be a disciple of Jesus. 
this idea is foreign to the New Testament. Foreign. The hope of the world, he says, is still in dedicated minorities. The trailblazers in human, academic, scientific, and religious freedom have always been in the minority. It would take such a small, committed minority to work unrelentingly to win the uncommitted majority. Such a group may well transform America's greatest dilemma into an almost glorious opportunity. Small minorities have always changed the world. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, The Tipping Point, explores this very idea and notion. And social scientists have found out that once there is about 10% of a population who hold to a certain belief, value, or practice, by default, it will eventually hit the majority, and the majority will follow suit. We also see this in the realm of the political science theory, what's called the Overton window, how an unthinkable idea eventually becomes policy, how something that seems impossible becomes acceptable, becomes sensible, becomes now within our normal everyday life and simply becomes history. The small minority eventually, with just a handful, can impact our society. And in this teaching series, we have looked at a few different postures of resolve that we must take if we are going to live as a creative minority in what is now referred to as digital Babylon. So what are those postures that we have looked at over the last few weeks? We've looked at four so far. The first is that we must have a rooted identity. A rooted identity. The idea of identity is simply that which you are one with, that which you belong to, or in the realm of psychology, that which you are attached to. What provides you a sense of stability? Daniel and his friends had a rooted identity. They sought to change their names, but they're like, that's not who we are. We have a name that's been given by our community as a statement of who we worship. The second is to be a redemptive influence. In the second week, we looked at the idea of vocational stewardship. How do you use your work and your vocation as a place of influence to be a faithful presence? The third posture that Pastor Jay looked at a couple weeks ago is the notion of radical worship. Questioning and looking at our allegiances or our sense of loyalty. Resisting idols and naming modern temples of idol worship in our current moment. We don't worship physical idols any longer, but we worship money. We worship sex. We worship power. We worship self-expression. We worship our tribe. We worship all other types of idols, but we have to resist these temptations. The fourth posture that Vanilla looked at last week is the idea of restorative truth. How can we be a courageous people of faith and integrity in our society? To be whole and complete. So rooted identity, redemptive influence, radical worship, and restorative truth. Now today, we come to Daniel chapter 6 and the very last chapter of the narrative genre of Daniel before it becomes apocalyptic. Keep in mind, when you read the library of the scriptures, first and foremost, know that it's a library. 
It's not just a single book. It's a library of 66 books, multiple genres, dozens of authors covering thousands of years. And a specific genre is the narrative genre, the the historical genre. But there's also another genre called apocalyptic. This is the idea that we see in Revelation. And the back half of Daniel, 7 through 12, is apocalyptic literature. It's prophetic. It's very uh, imagery-laden. So we're not going to get into 7 through 12. We don't have time for all that. I would encourage you to go uh, read it and figure it out. And if you figure it out, come let me know what Daniel is actually prophesying, okay? So we are in the very last chapter of the historical and the narrative portion of this ancient book. Now, by the time we arrive in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel and his buddies have been living in Babylon for upwards of six decades. Six decades they've been living in Babylon. How many of you have been living in a place for, you know, at least two decades? Like you haven't, you haven't moved in two decades. You've been in the same place. For two decades. Anybody? Or are we all transplants from different places? I know there are people who have been here at least 20 years. Has anybody been in this area for 30? At least 30? Come on. How about 40 years? Anybody? Yes. Come on. How about 50? 50? Yes. Yes. Come on. Anybody? Six decades. They've been in this area. Come on. Yes. Seven decades? Come on. (laughs) We're not there yet. Daniel and his buddies have been in this place for six decades. I remember when our friends Jordan and Mallory were building their home, not building their home, they were moving into their home, I should say. Um, They told us, they said, this is the house we're going to die in. We're not moving. We are planting ourselves in Rockingham County, not going anywhere, baby. Imagine six decades, right? I'm not going anywhere. Now, keep in mind, they have a choice. Daniel and his friends do not. Six decades they have been in exile and in Babylon. When they arrived in exile, they were mere teenagers, roughly 13 to 15 years old. And now they are going on 80 years old on the brink of retirement. Now, we don't, in our community, if you're new, we don't have anyone at Emmaus old enough to play the part of an elderly Daniel. So, Mr. Clapp, you are our best option. (laughs) Jimmy, we look to you as our reference point today of Daniel on the brink of retirement in Babylon, okay? Anybody close to 80 in here? Just curious, almost, 75 maybe? Be be proud, come on. Life well lived, yes, love that. Come on, that's great. So you got this young man who is not so young anymore, is on the brink of retirement, and Daniel and his friends have been living faithfully in Babylon for quite some time. And at this point, in ancient history, we have moved past the reign of the Babylonian Empire, and now it belongs to the Medo-Persian Empire, who seized Babylonia in 539 BC, making it the largest empire in the history of the world at the time. Spanning, check this out, three continents, west to Egypt, 
north to modern-day Greece, northeast to modern-day Russia, and east to modern-day Pakistan. You're talking about a massive empire. And a fun historical fact for all you history nerds this morning, this empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, lasted for 200 years until a little-known Macedonian 20-year-old warrior named Alex conquered it, that being Alexander the Great. This is where Daniel and his friends find themselves. So let's go to Daniel chapter 6. And we're going to start reading in verse 1. Go ahead and open up the scriptures. Use the table of contents if you need to. There's no shame in the table of contents. Here's what it reads. It pleased Darius, who most scholars, by the way, believe this to be a throne name of Cyrus the Great or Cyrus the Persian, despite there being some historical debate on who, in fact, Darius is. But Darius was a common throne name or could be someone that Cyrus put in place to oversee Babylon. But it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps or governors, to give you an idea of what a satrap is, an overseer of a piece of geography to rule throughout the kingdom. And remember how large this kingdom is. With three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps, or the governors, by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom, over the whole empire, spanning from Egypt, north to modern-day Greece, to Russia, east to Pakistan. Daniel is set to become second in command, overseeing this entire region under Darius or King Cyrus. So, Daniel has had a long career in Babylonian political life. He served under multiple kings and now within two different kingdoms or empires. Yet, Daniel continues to impress. He's 80 years old and he's still impressing everyone. He continues to be good at his work and vocation. If we as a people are going to be a redemptive influence in society and a creative minority, we need to be good at our work over the long haul. We need to be good at what we put our mind and our hands to over the long haul. Whatever you and I do, may it be done for the glory of God as an act of worship. And we see this modeled in the life of Daniel. Six plus decades of good work. And from the beginning, Daniel has had exceptional intelligence, wisdom, discernment, and problem-solving skills. On top of that, Daniel is a professional dream interpreter. No big deal. He's just a pro at interpreting dreams. 
He has built quite a resume, if you ask me. And now he finds himself on the brink of becoming the second in command over the Medo-Persian Empire with the highest level of influence, power, and position of authority he has ever had. Now, here's what's interesting about Daniel. Though his LinkedIn may have been impressive, and his LinkedIn was impressive, it doesn't seem his Facebook was. Because many colleagues and peers didn't like Daniel. And they were jealous of how well-liked he was by the king. Daniel always finds himself in a position of being liked by whatever king is leading at the time. And his colleagues and peers, they don't like it. So what do they do? They conspire against him. Daniel, in their mind, is the proverbial teacher's pet. He's always getting opportunities. You know those people in your workplace are always getting opportunity. Some of you are like, I know exactly who is coming to my mind right now. I can't stand that person. They're always succeeding in life. (laughs) Oh, man, geez. That's Daniel. Daniel seems to always have opportunity. He's the proverbial teacher's pet in the mind of his colleagues and peers. So they conspire against him. Let's go to verse 4 and 5 of Daniel chapter 6. It says this. The administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because... He was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Daniel wasn't sloppy, wasn't careless. He wasn't apathetic, wasn't lazy. He was also trustworthy and faithful. So finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Now, it is one thing for Daniel to have an excellent resume and pedigree. That's one thing. But where he sets himself apart, and Vania touched on this last week, is his high level of integrity and character. Not just in his relationship to Yahweh, but even in his career. He has high moral and spiritual character in his devotion to Yahweh, high integrity. But that transfers into his vocation and into his career. He was faithful and committed as well as careful and attentive. Now, in the marketplace, we might just call this integrity. But throughout the scriptures, this is referred to as holiness. This is called holiness to be distinct, to be other, to be devoted, to be set apart for God's design and purpose. Now, remember back in chapter 1, Daniel resolved or purposed in his heart as a teenager not to be defiled, not to be corrupted, not to be tainted. He didn't just 
practiced integrity. He actually embodied holiness. And he embodied holiness for a lifetime. He embodied integrity for at least six plus decades. These guys could literally find no dirt on Daniel whatsoever. Nothing. No bosses would give them any dirt. No neighbors. And some of our neighbors, they got some dirt on us, I'm pretty sure, if we talk to some of them. No ex-girlfriends. No dirt at all on Daniel. And when I thought of this, and I saw this faithful living of Daniel in his workplace as both one of high integrity and as one embodying holiness, I thought about this verse from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, where Peter says, Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. St. Jerome says this in the 5th century, Blessed indeed is a life so led that even enemies can't find no cause for accusation, except perhaps in matter pertaining to God's law. For us today, Emmaus, church, friends, family, all of us, it is one thing to be zealous for a season, to be fired up for Jesus after you came home from a conference or you went to summer camp or you had a really good Sunday. It's one thing to be zealous for a season, but to be faithful for a lifetime is the mark of true resilience. And this is what we are after. Faithfulness for a lifetime, which is the mark of resilience. The only thing that they could work off of to try and dismantle Daniel was his obedience to Yahweh. That's the only thing they could work off of. There's nothing else. They had to literally go to his obedience to find something. There was no other dirt found. His only character flaw in their eyes was his loyalty to Yahweh. What if your only character flaw was how you obeyed the way of Jesus? In the eyes of the world. This is Daniel's only flaw. Not that he was perfect, but they just couldn't find anything. And these young men knew it. So we know that his faith practice wasn't just private, but also public as well. They knew of his devotion. They'd seen it. They've been around it. Do people in your life, in your public life, do they know about your devotion? Have they seen it? If I interviewed them, would they know you were a devoted follower of the way of Jesus? As weird as that might be. Would they know? It's an important question, I think, for all of us to ask. And I realize we're living in a moment where that's becoming harder for some of us. But I would say it's pretty difficult for Daniel. His life's been on the line multiple times, and it's about to be on the line again. So what do they do to trap him? What do these young men do to try and trap Daniel? Public policy law, ordinance, regulation. 
Look at Daniel 6, verse 6 through 9. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Keep in mind, at this moment in the Persian Empire, it is a pluralistic society. All right? And in some ways, it's polytheistic. There was an encouragement to worship as many gods as you possibly could. And they're going to King Darius and saying, let's do something for 30 days. Let's have everyone worship you, ultimately, and not pray to any other god. Let's look to you as the ultimate mediator between the gods and humanity. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. In case you're wondering, this is referred to as a constitutional monarchy. Even King Darius has to submit to the law which he enacts. And what's so interesting about Daniel chapter 6, if you don't already Uh, pick up on it, is that it mirrors Daniel chapter 3. The two most famous flannel graph, as well as VeggieTales stories of all time. The fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the eventual lion's den in Daniel chapter 6. And just for the sake of nostalgia, I have a picture for us this morning of Rack, Shaq, and Benny. And the chocolate bunnies. We've been talking about chocolate bunnies all series long. And and some of you are like, honestly, I didn't grow up in church. And I praise God that I didn't because this is weird. (laughs) Talking vegetables, it's digital. But let me tell you something. VeggieTales was a movement. (laughs) It was a movement. So much so that I believe they bit off more than they could chew and they went bankrupt. So, you know, it's whatever. Rack, Shack, and Benny. And then we have Heroes of the Bible, which looked at David and Goliath, Esther, and Daniel in the lion's den. Look at the top line. Lions, shepherds, and queens. Oh, my. I mean, come on. How creative is that? So, yes, we have the fiery furnace in Daniel 3. And it's, you know, fun for kids to do the flannel graph, which is kind of weird because that's a really, you know, really tough story to wrap, you know, grab your grapple with. And then you got Daniel uh, chapter 6 here. Now we got the lion's den. And in those two stories, it's funny because they actually mirror each other, but in the reverse order. They parallel, but in the reverse. The difference is that the temptation in Daniel 6 is the reverse temptation of Daniel chapter 3. Daniel 3 was about resolving not to worship idols. And Daniel 6 is about resolving to worship Yahweh. Not worship idols in Daniel chapter 3, worship Yahweh in chapter 6. Here's what the Old Testament scholar Wendy Witter has to say about this unique mirroring. In the story of the fiery furnace, the issue was public allegiance to the king. Presumably, the three men could have freely worshiped God privately and perhaps even publicly publicly. 
Polytheistic culture allows that. But Daniel's enemies reached beyond any public display of loyalty into the privacy of his prayer life. They demanded exclusive allegiance to the state publicly and privately. To live as a creative minority, to be a planted and rooted people, requires saying both no as well as yes. We have to be able to discern what we should as people say yes to and no to. What are the activities that we should say yes to and what are the activities we should say no to? It's an important aspect of being a creative minority, and it's not easy. It is not for the faint of heart. We have to know what we should say yes to and no to, both in public and in private. Jonathan Sachs calls this living in a cognitive dissonance. This is what it means to be a creative minority, to live in this cognitive dissonance where there's a constant tension with the world around you and maybe what you believe or who you love or what you practice. So what does Daniel do? Verse 10 shows us this. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three, de- three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Now, what a boss move by Daniel. What a stud, yes. Like, there's a decree out that if you start praying in private to another God, then you're going to be thrown into the lion's den. Daniel, as soon as he hears that, he goes right into prayer. Like, what are you doing, man? Like, you're either courageous or stupid. I don't know which one, okay? But when we see this, we begin to think that it's some sort of prophetic rebellion or a beautiful resistance. And there has been moments where Daniel has practiced beautiful resistance and prophetic rebellion. We see that in chapter one. But this isn't so much a rebellion as it is his normal rhythm. In chapter 3, they refuse to worship. But in chapter 6, Daniel refuses to stop worshiping. But it's not rebellion. It's just his normal rhythm. It's just as he had done before. Or the NLT says, just as he has always done. The New American Standard says, just as he had previously been doing, this is just what he did. This wasn't rebellion. This was just his rhythm of life. And my question for all of us in response to this text, if this is what Daniel had been doing, what have you been doing with God? What have you been doing with God? Wherever you are on the spectrum of your journey, what have you been doing with God? And why? Or another question for you to ponder this morning, 
what would we find you doing in private in your home? If we just showed up randomly, middle of the week, Thursday, 7.30, what might we find you doing in your home? It's an important question for us to ask and examine. Here's the catch. The rhythm of three times a day prayer, now referred to millennia later as the daily office, is not a command found anywhere in the Torah. Nowhere in the law of God is the command to pray three times a day found. Nowhere. Rather, it is a strategic choice. It is a choice. It was his choice. Not a command. It's his choice. For Daniel, prayer wasn't his last resort, but his first priority. Some of us live lives, and the way we live our lives, we just simply just function. Well, I guess we should pray about that. Well, we've tried everything else, so let's pray. For Daniel, it wasn't his last resort. It was the first priority. Daniel has been faithfully serving and worshiping Yahweh for six decades. Don't you think he could have stopped praying for 30 days? I mean, come on. Like, just 30 days. Just stop praying, man. Hold off. Better yet, just close your window. Like, just put some curtains up. Close the window. Make it seem like no one's home. You can keep praying, but close the window. You know, it doesn't take a big excuse for us to choose not to pray. And yet, Daniel, even though his entire life is on the line, says, well, this is just what I do. This is how I live. Prayer for Daniel was a habit. Wired into his muscle memory. Now, a quick note on habits, briefly. Most habits that we have are caught rather than taught. Or they're imitated rather than trained. A lot of what we do is by example. We're imitating someone else. We do what we see done. Sheer willpower actually doesn't work. We have to practice with others. We have to find examples of others that we want to essentially become like. And so we imitate them. There's been a ton of uh, neuropsychology on this and the importance of imitation and finding an example for us to um, look at. This is why doing discipleship alone is impossible. You can't follow Jesus by sheer willpower. You have to be in community of people who are more mature than you are, so you have someone to imitate, to follow as an example. We're wired to imitate. And so I believe Daniel probably saw this done when he was a kid, maybe by his parents or his grandparents, or those around him. And if you remember in Daniel chapter 2, he did this rhythm with his friends when he was like 18 years old. They prayed together in the upper room, the, the upper part of his home. And now he is 80 years old, and it's wired into him. Wired into him. I know for me, I remember seeing my dad growing up Almost every night, he would leave the living room, he would go upstairs, and he would have his quiet time. I'm like six years old. 
And I remember seeing that rhythm constantly. I remember driving to church every single Sunday morning, and my mom would always get my brother and I to pray out loud with her, to intercede on behalf of our gathering. And now my desire, even though it's not easy by any means, is to mimic and imitate that same rhythm. We have to be able to find mature believers in our life that we can imitate. And in that, develop habits and practices. Now, in September, this past September, a book came out that was an instant New York Times bestseller by Ryan Holiday called Discipline is Destiny. And the apparent central theme is the predictive nature of our discipline. He says this in an article on the book. Who we are, the standards we hold ourselves to, the things we do regularly, in the end, these are all better predictors of the trajectory of our lives than the things like talent, resources, or anything else. For us to become and live in Babylon as a creative minority, we must have a disciplined rhythm of prayer. It's not enough to have just a rooted identity. It's not enough to just be a redemptive influence. It's not enough to just have radical worship. It's not enough just to practice restorative truth. We have to have a disciplined rhythm of prayer. In other words, this is just what I do. This is just how I live. This is my practice. This is habit. All of us have habits, good habits, bad habits. What if prayer became a habit in your life? What if our prayer rhythm carried the same weight in your calendar as watching your favorite TV show or sports team? Because I know there are certain shows, whatever it may be, when it comes out, when it's on, you're in front of that television. When the new episode of Yellowstone comes out, you're in front of that TV. Are you not? Well, when your team's playing on Saturday, right? right? <laughs> when my team's playing on Saturday, I'm usually right in front of that TV. And guess what? I turn down other people because of that habit. It takes nothing for us to turn down prayer. Because if we're honest, it's not prioritized. Because if we're honest, our love for Jesus isn't compelling enough for us to prioritize time with him. We have to create space, guess what, in our calendar. Some of you need to put prayer in your Google calendar and get a reminder every single day. Now, for some of us, it's not a habit. So you need to start small. You're not going to be praying three times a day on your face, on your knees, in travailing prayer, screaming at God in an intercession. Start small, but you need a rhythm. Don't sit here and act like you can't change without intentionally creating space to help orient you in a different direction. Formation takes intentional change. We have to have rhythms and practices that help us and guide us. Because if not, society, our work, our family sucks us away. What if prayer carried the same weight in your calendar as watching TV shows or your sports team or your gym routine? Which, I'll be honest, not a challenge for your boy. 
not a challenge for me. Or, this resonates, in our season of life, our baby's bedtime. As rigid as young parents are about a baby's routine, why doesn't that transfer into our practice with the way of Jesus? Into prayer. If it's literally life and death. If he's the bread of life. If he is what nourishes us. We are more adamant about getting Selah to bed at 7 o'clock than we are about entering into a space of prayer. And I get it. It's hard to follow Jesus as a new parent. Hard. So difficult. But we have to figure out a way. It might be different, but we got to figure out a way to prioritize and to create a space for prayer. And keep in mind, the rhythm of prayer was in conjunction with Daniel's high character, integrity, and steadfastness. Your integrity over the long haul is deeply tied to your prayer life. Your integrity and your steadfastness and your character over the long haul is going to be deeply tied to your prayer life. And guys, at the core of prayer is simply an outpouring of your heart and love to the Father. It's not a place to work. It's not a place to produce. It's a place to ultimately release and receive, to recognize his presence, to recognize his goodness, to give thanks, to ask, to petition, to pause. You need to get nothing out of prayer but being with the Father. And I tell you this, him seeking you will always be more active than you seeking him. Him wanting you will always be more than you wanting him. And seeking him, friends, is as easy as breathing. Would you just turn your attention to him? Pete Gregg says this in his wonderful book, How to Pray, which I encourage you all to get it. A Christian who prays only when they feel like it may survive, but will never thrive. If you pray only when you feel like it, and I'm the world's worst, to be honest, this is convicting for me. I'm an emotional person. I love experiences. I got to feel it to be in it. But this is convicting to me because if we only pray when we feel like it, we're only going to be reacting in life, surviving, but we will never thrive. Now, as we close, two things that we can easily miss when we read through this text quickly. The first thing is that Daniel gets on his knees. Daniel gets on his knees. This is, as Vania mentioned last week, embodied worship. Both a posture of dependence and praise. Some of you in your prayer life that may or may not be existent need to take time to get down. I don't care if it's for 60 seconds, 30 seconds, or for three hours. Which if that's you, I really want to know your routine. And you need to just get on your knees. And maybe it's sit in silence. Maybe you need to have a room in your home where when you set aside time, you take your shoes off and you walk in to just say, I'm present. I'm not going anywhere. It needs to be embodied. Some of us try to pray by lounging on the couch and that always ends up with me asleep. I'll be honest. Or we try to pray before we go to bed, which really is just our way of putting ourselves to sleep, if we're honest. (laughs) I pray before I go to bed. No, no, you just go to sleep. (laughs) <laughs> you know, uh, but like we need to embody, 
prayer. And I think we see this in Daniel. The second thing that we can easily miss is that the windows open to Jerusalem. That he looks to, it seems, to Jerusalem every time he engages in this practice. And why does he do this? Why does Daniel do this? It seems that he is following instruction given by King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8 at the dedication of the temple some four centuries prior. We see that story and that prayer of dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8, where Solomon says, When they pray toward this place and give praise to your name, there's this call to pray facing towards the temple. But it doesn't say he looks to the temple. It says the windows are open to Jerusalem. He is not only consistently abiding or reattaching himself to God, but he is also reattaching himself to his people and his people's story by looking to Jerusalem. Here's what my friend and friend of our communities, Matt Leroy, has to say on this text. Don't forget that Daniel was now second in command in the empire. He had great influence and proximity to power, yet he did not look to the empire for his deliverance. He went to his room, opened his windows toward Jerusalem, and fixed his eyes on a kingdom he could not see. He had the vision to discern the alternative story and align his life with that script. Jerusalem, if you did not know, means the city of Shalom the city of peace. And as we pray as a people and seek the shalom of our city, we must have a certain vision of shalom that we can look to, that we can see. But it seems to me this prayer rhythm was the very foundation of Daniel and his friends and their ability to not only survive Babylonian captivity, but to thrive in it as well as influence it from the inside out. If you read the Hebrew Bible or what's called the Tanakh, at the very end of the Hebrew Bible is the book of Chronicles. And the way the book of Chronicles ends in the Hebrew Bible and in our Old Testament is it ends with the return of the exiles to Judah and to Jerusalem under King Cyrus. A return, a restoration There was influence. King Cyrus literally is speaking of the God of heaven. And I believe with all my heart that something was connected to the resilience and the rhythm and the faithfulness of Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And God was faithful to his covenant and they were faithful to him in the midst of exile. They found a way to thrive in it as well as influence it. Daniel was never popular, ever. And as a follower of Jesus, let me just tell you, it is not popular, nor will it ever be. Even if the 90s made it seem a little popular, even if Young Life's tried to make it a little popular, even if there's some rock bands you enjoyed that tried to make it popular, it is no longer popular to follow Jesus. If anything, it is a threat to the vision of the Western world. To deny oneself, to pick up your cross, and to follow an authority other than yourself. It's not popular 
but it is potent. If one Nazi soldier in the midst of World War II decided to not raise a hand, they may have been one person, but that was a potent decision. We are to be both salt and light in this world, a potent people. Maybe not popular, maybe not powerful from a traditional sense of the word, but a potent, resilient influence in our society, inspiring people to look higher than themselves. But it requires a rhythm of prayer. And though this story is not prescriptive by any means, if we follow the pattern found in Daniel as a people living in our current moment, it won't come without fear, challenge, or pressure. But it will be a renewing agent from within. Even when you and I are planted in a desert, an outpouring of the Spirit will always produce a bloom. And may we be a people. Here's my charge. Here's the benediction. Here's my call to all of us. Whether you're visiting or not, may we be a people for the next six decades who habitually go into our closets, get on our knees, worship and give thanks and pray for rain to come. Because if you read Chronicles, the call of these people to return to Israel, I believe was a response to a group of a few praying and seeking for repentance and for a return, for a revival. If you read again in 1 Kings chapter 8, the call to look towards Jerusalem, to look towards this place was a call for rain in particular. Because Solomon says, if they don't see rain, may they look towards this place and call for rain. May we be a community, a people, a resilient group. We're praying for rain to come with a rhythm of prayer who live a life built in and out of an alternative story anchored in the reality that there is one true God, one true King who rules over all. His name is Jesus. Remember where Daniel's praying. It's in an upper room. Where were the 120 praying in Acts chapter 2 before the outpouring of the Spirit? In an upper room. Where did Jesus tell his disciples to practice the broken body and the poured out blood in remembrance of him in an upper room. There is power when we are in a lofty place seeking God, praising him and giving thanks even when times are challenging. And I want us, all of us, to be a creative minority like Daniel and his friends. Distinct, unique, weird, empowered, prophetic, hospitable, loving, uh, uh, honest, just, truthful, integrated, compassionate, humble, hardworking, non-anxious, prayerful, steadfast, and most importantly, holy. May we be that kind of people. Because where we find ourselves as we move